From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. In this episode of Land Stories, we have quite the story to tell. It is ostensibly a story of business tycoon and then Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush coming to Michigan in June of 1986. However, the visit itself was very much overshadowed by the backstory behind the visit. In particular, one of the people, actually the person, that George Herbert Walker Bush came to Lansing to see, a very well-known local businessman by the name of John P. McGough. So on this episode of Land Stories, we are going to talk about the June 1986 visit to Lansing and why it was so controversial when George Herbert Walker Bush came to Lansing and some of the fallout of that visit as well as some of the background behind why there were a couple dozen protesters that showed up at the airport to greet then Vice President Bush, John P. McGough, the Panax Corporation and a Vice President on this episode of Land Stories. So the story actually does begin uh, way before the day of Monday, June 16th, 1986. But we will talk about that Monday here uh, for a few moments before we get into the background story. Monday, June 16th, 1986, Dateline, and the location is Lansing, Michigan. And if we opened up a copy of a newspaper on that day, we would have read a headline that Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush came to Lansing, Michigan to meet with local businessman John McGough. And as it turns out, protesters met Bush and the entourage that the vice president brought with them at the airport. The reason why protesters did that is because Vice President Bush at the time came to Lansing to meet with the person who started the Panax Corporation, that would be John P. McGough. And McGough, by the time 1986 rolls around, has become a prominent member of the Republican Party. And he is one of the donors that the Republicans can rely on to fund campaigns. So in 1986, it's an election year, U.S. House of Representatives Every two years, all U.S. House seats go up for uh, re-election. And in this case, Bob Carr, his U.S. House of Representatives seat was the uh, seat being contested. And Jim Dunn was a Republican from Wayne County who happened to be the candidate the Republicans chose to contest that election. Bob Carr, at that point, had been the incumbent Democrat and had held the seat for several terms. Now, Dunn was well-known in the Republican Party, having been a property developer in the Detroit area for many years. He made a name for himself in the Michigan business community and had actually entered politics way before the 1986 election. He unseated Bob Carr in 1980 when that seat was up for re-election. And so uh, had served one term in the U.S. House of Representatives from the 1981 through 1982 term. And then it did not get reelected, and indeed, the voters returned Bob Carr to the uh, House of Representatives. 
end, the White House comes back into the picture here because the reason why Vice President Bush, as I said a moment ago, came to Lansing in 1986 was to raise money for the Jim Dunn campaign. So this then gets us to the point where uh, Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush has come to Lansing. And that uh, visit, as most vice presidential visits into an area like this, uh, where they're going to come to the area via airplane, begin. And that would be with the then vice president flying to the Lansing Capital Airport and a plane lands. There are protesters that greet him there. Uh, maybe greeting isn't the right word, but I don't know about you, but me, oftentimes when I read through newspaper articles or what have you, stories online that talk about protesters, oftentimes the author of the story uses the word greet, which I always thought was, you know, kind of a little bit strange, but nonetheless they do. And so in the uh, research that I conducted to compose this episode, the word greeting uh, was used frequently in the newspaper articles that I was able to find that discussed this visit. And in fact, researching the uh, story here turns out to be a really uh, interesting and important story within itself. And part of the reason for that is because in researching for this episode, I really did come right to that point where history ends and journalism begins. And there is actually a point where history ends and journalism begins. And I must absolutely give full credit to a professor I had as an undergraduate at Central Michigan University years ago, Dr. Mitchell Hall, for introducing into my young, impressionable mind this idea that historians and journalists kind of try to do the same thing with one super huge difference, and that super huge difference, not an academic term, but still one we can use, is really all about time. It's all about when the events or the people or the phenomena or the buildings that the historian or the journalist is writing about took place or were prominent or were pertinent to the story that said historian or journalist is trying to uncover. And in the case of the story that I was trying to uncover here uh, with this episode of Land Stories, I ended up very much relying on the sources that I was able to locate through old newspapers, as well as an absolute incredible source that I found. I'm going to talk about here momentarily, but the reason why I mention this now is because the sources that I consulted were very much mostly newspapers produced by journalists, of course, at the time. And when historians research topics, they really are used to working on subject matter that happened quite some time ago. And newspapers, of course, are a really obvious source to look for anything that would have received a fair amount of public uh, mention. And so it's not at all surprising, therefore, that when I started to inquire about John McGough and the Panax Corporation and how they ended up being involved in this vice presidential visit to the state of Michigan, to the Lansing area specifically, now, it's no surprise that newspapers were the first thing that popped in my mind of places to look. But then that brought right back into my mind this very idea that I was researching something that I was going to be relying heavily on the work of journalists to uncover. But at the same time, topics that are involving people that are 
well, still alive, still around. And that is really a very important distinguishing factor, I think, between where journalism ends or history ends and journalism begins if we wanted to go chronologically in our consideration of the subject because historians are, I think, a little bit more comfortable, at least speaking personally, in writing about people that aren't alive anymore. Whereas journalists, they oftentimes write about people that are still alive. And the very nature of human existence and time and the passage of time means that when a historian approaches a subject that happened uh, 30 or 40 years ago, roughly that 30-ish, 40-ish year ago time frame, which is when this event happened, actually 38 years ago, we historians are not only existing in the domain of writing about people that aren't around anymore. We are in the domain of writing about people that are still around, or at least in the case of a subject matter such as this, discussing, writing about a subject that involves events, people, phenomenon that aren't completely gone to people that are still alive. And so we need to be respectful of that. And it is something that I have very much kept in mind in researching this topic here. Now, there's one more thing I need to mention as we are getting into this more deeply here, and it's also related to the theme that I just spent a few moments contemplating. And that is, this episode discusses some topics that are, well, they're a little bit difficult for us because it involves violence perpetrated against people who are protesting. And so, a little bit of a warning to you listening right now, then about five minutes from now, um, this episode is going to discuss a very difficult topic, and it is a uh, protest that involved children being assaulted by the police. So, warning to you, that comes up in about five minutes. So, with all this said, the moment that we want to return our minds back to is the moment of Monday, the 16th of June, 1986. And there are protesters at the Capital Region International Airport greeting, there's that word again, Vice President Bush as his plane lands. Now, why were those protesters there? What were they actually protesting? Were they just protesting the mere presence of Vice President Bush? Well, no, they were not. They were protesting something that they believed he had a direct tie to in his coming to Lansing to meet with John McGough. So, let's talk about John McGough. Who was he? Why has his name come up? And why was George Herbert Walker Bush in Lansing to see him? John McGough has quite a fascinating story, actually. And in researching this episode, I absolutely was amazed at all of the connections that I was able to find with Mr. McGough and various community organizations and businesses that are in the Lansing area even to this day. So John McGough comes to Michigan actually after having grown up in Pennsylvania. He grew up in Edgewood, Pennsylvania, which isn't far from Pittsburgh, and his father worked in the uh, local steel industry. After he graduated from high school, like many young men who were born in the 1920s, he ended up being called to service for his nation during World War II. He saw action in France and Germany as part of the 3rd Infantry Division Medical Battalion. After that, he enrolled at the Michigan State College, what we now call Michigan State University. And from there, he earned a bachelor's degree in journalism and eventually went on to earn a master's degree in history. That's right. 
He earned a master's degree in history and wrote his master's thesis on the establishment of the Michigan Agricultural College. So essentially his thesis was the history of the college and why there was a degree of controversy uh, surrounding the establishment of it. Eventually, he ended up working for Michigan State University in an administrative role. And from that point on is when McGough actually made a couple of what would become very important local connections to his future business career and ended up starting the company that would eventually become Panax Corporation. And the very beginning of that company is in the formation of the WSWM FM radio station and the corresponding Mid-State Broadcasting Corporation. McGough's life ended up taking a dramatic turn for the, um, well, for the better in terms of his financial future and his business success when he befriended Michael Dow. Michael Dow is the son of Alden Dow a uh, very well-known person in Michigan history. And, of course, the Dow name is well-known around the state. In befriending Alden Dow's son, Michael, McGough was able to obtain a loan from Michael's father, Alden Dow. And with that money, he formed an investment group with Michael Dow and Clarence Dusty Rhodes and Harold L. Good, all men that would become well-known names in Michigan business community, in the uh, print and broadcast media businesses as well. And very much because of the founding of WSWM and the Mid-State Broadcasting Corporation. The radio station, WSWM, went on the air out of a broadcasting of private residence on M43, kind of between East Lansing and Williamston, heading out towards Okemos. If uh, any of you listening are familiar with the uh, Lansing, East Lansing, mid-Michigan region, that's M43. Well, that stretch of M43 that runs through this part of Ingham County is the uh, road we're talking about here. And so that's where the radio station broadcast out of. And McGough formed the company with his initial investors, and then went on to hire a staff to run the radio station and his broadcasting company. And there is a Lansing Community College connection into here in that the gentleman that McGough named to head the company, be the station vice president, involved in day-to-day operations, a gentleman by the name of James Anderton, who later uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, went on to serve briefly as the third president of Lansing Community College. So... Many years into the future, our story right now is taking place in the 1950s, so it was several decades into the future, but eventually that would happen. So getting back to the formation of WSWM and the Mid-State Broadcasting Corporation, this was McGough's really the beginning of a business career that would eventually see McGough forming the Panax Corporation, and Panax itself was a uh, media conglomerate, really, is what it was. Panax owned radio stations, it owned TV stations, and it owned newspapers. And in fact, McGough expanded Panax itself into the publishing business, more broadly speaking. And in that capacity, ended up acquiring many newspapers around the country, including several in Michigan that include the Daily Press in Escanaba, the uh, Mining Journal of Marquette, and the Daily News in Iron Mountain. Now, these are Upper Peninsula, Western Upper Peninsula locations, these newspapers, and McGough would eventually 
express a big interest in playing a role in developing the Upper Peninsula economy. This is something that after World War II, actually, broadly speaking around the state of Michigan, there's a considerable interest in assessing the economic situation of the Upper Peninsula, which by the time you get into the post-World War II era, the UP has had a quite a different economic turn of fortunes than the Lower Peninsula, especially the southern part of the Lower Peninsula. The western part of the UP relied very heavily on mining as its economic base throughout the late 1800s and really the first half of the 1900s. And World War II represented a real peak in the mining sector in the western UP. After the war ended, copper mining industry, which already had been on the decline, declined even further. A lot of changes in the iron ore industry, and the long short of it is the Western Upper Peninsula economy took a rather dramatic turn for the worse when uh, those changes in the mining sector uh, lessened the uh, economic impact that that sector had on that part of the state's economy. So after World War II, there's a considerable amount of interest amongst the state's business leaders, its business community, amongst the state's politicians to try to develop the Upper Peninsula economy into something beyond mining. That would be quite the discussion for another episode of Land Stories as to the extent of those economic development efforts and the short and long-term significance of them. But for now, the reason why I mention it is because McGough never lost his interest in this aspect of the Upper Peninsula in developing economically and ended up going on to be appointed to the Board of Trustees at Northern Michigan University as sort of a a lesson example of how much he uh, very much valued his ability to impact the Upper Peninsula. Now, McGough's business operations, though, still very much had their Lansing tied to them and were headquartered in Lansing, even though, or the Lansing area, even though McGough operated very much not only around the state of Michigan, but around the United States and around the world. And that around the world aspect of his business operations is actually the whole reason why those protesters were at the airport on June 16th, 1986 to begin with. This part of the story takes us to South Africa. It takes us to December of 1973 when McGough founded Zanap Limited in South Africa. McGough founded this company. Actually, it was an arm of the Panax Corporation, more broadly speaking. And Xanax Limited is the name of the company that the Panax Corporation set up in South Africa in December of 1973. Later on, they founded another company called Panax Limited. And then that company, Panax Limited, was essentially used to purchase a large controlling stake in Zanap. Now, between 1974 and 1975, this Panax company then was set up in South Africa, eventually put about a half a million dollars in setting up a printing operation, a printing facility in Johannesburg. The South African government was heavily involved in this because they underwrote the business transactions. In other words, they provided some of the finance capital that allowed the Zanac company to set up and operate in South Africa to begin with. So the business ties that McGough had in South Africa really could not be separated from the South African government. This is where McGough is going to eventually run into a whole slew of trouble 
And there is, it must be pointed out, there is still a considerable degree of uncertainty over the extent at which McGough did actually face legal troubles or legal challenges based on his operations in South Africa. Now, what we do know is between 1974 and 1975, as I mentioned a moment ago, Panax Corporation invested several hundred thousand dollars or the equivalent of several hundred thousand dollars in South African currency at the time, building a printing facility in Johannesburg. Over the next several years, the Panax company would expand its operations throughout South Africa. And in fact, McGough used support from the Michigan Chamber of Commerce to promote his business interests in South Africa and other business interests. Now, there's a couple of things to keep in mind here with regards to doing business in South Africa and why in the 1970s, this may have been a country that uh, had interest in American and other investors in expanding their business operations into new markets. South Africa was seen as one of the uh, most important developing markets in Africa. And in the early and middle 1970s, South Africa itself was on the brink of what would eventually become a major political and cultural change, a outright revolution really in the country, with the dismantling of the apartheid regime. Apartheid, the word apartheid, is a word that has its roots in Afrikaans, which is a language that developed in South Africa out of the colonization of the region by the British and the Dutch, in the 1800s and 1900s. By the time you get to the middle 1970s, South Africa has existed for about 30 years, essentially a one-party state. It was governed by a party known as the National Party, and they were a white government, so a government of the white ruling minority in South Africa. The population in South Africa in the mid-1970s was about 15% white, about 85% black, yet it was virtually impossible for blacks to hold any political power and had very little economic power in South Africa as well. The entire uh, National Party governing structure was based on instituting a rigid system of segregation to keep its white minority government in power. Now, on the morning of the 16th of June in 1976, massive student protests broke out across uh, Soweto in South Africa, which is an industrial city in the country. The protests were student protests. It was mostly K-12 age students. So we're talking about kids. We're not talking about college students, young adults, although what happened to these kids in Soweto on the 16th and 17th of June in 1976 certainly wouldn't have been anything good if it had happened to adults, but it must be pointed out that it didn't. It happened to children, and thousands of children took to the streets to protest the attempt by the white government to institute mandatory speaking of Afrikaans in schools where previously uh, the children had not been instructed in what was seen as a, a colonial language imposed upon the population. And so the students, kids, went out to protest this in mass, and the police opened fire on them, including killing some of them. 
and some of the most horrific images that ever emerged out of the apartheid regime in South Africa actually came from the Soweto uprising, as it was called, including an absolutely horrific image of a 12-year-old boy's body being carried by a man with his sister running aside after having been gunned down and killed by the police. So absolutely horrific, horrific events that occurred there. Now, the Soweto uprising happened on June 16th, and it happens to be that in June 16th of 1986, so the Soweto uprising happened on June 16th, 1976, exactly 10 years to the day of this horrible event that happens and makes national and international news and actually is an event that brings really the the whole situation in South Africa with the horribly repressive regime of the National Party and apartheid out into the public. And internationally, the world becomes aware in a way that it had not been before what was going on in South Africa. So when we get to Lansing, Michigan on June 16th, 1986, what we have actually arrived at is the 10-year anniversary of the Soweto Uprising. Therefore, the protesters that met then-Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush at the Capital Region Airport that morning were there because it was the 10th anniversary of the Soweto Uprising. And those protesters knew that George Herbert Walker Bush was in town to go to a luncheon that McGough hosted at his private residence to raise money for the Republican Party, in particular that campaign for Jim Dunn against Bob Carr. And sadly, uh, we are out of time for this episode of Land Stories, so we are going to have to pick this story up and carry it on on another episode of Land Stories. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. Sharing the voices of Lansing Community College. Visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. LCC will be hosting a program and career showcase March 12th at West Campus. This event connects incoming and current students who have yet to decide on their program of study with faculty and staff who can help them learn more. Staff will also be on hand to help prospective students apply and get started. This event is free and open to current students and to the public. The Program and Career Showcase, March 12th. To find out more, visit lcc.edu slash showcase. The Lansing Community College Foundation provides scholarships that make education possible, change students' lives, and uplift our community. 
Students may apply for scholarships November 1st through January 31st. Learn more at lcc.edu scholarships. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. It's time for Stars on Sports, a podcast radio show dedicated to sharing stories about our athletic program at Lansing Community College. LCC Athletics has a strong tradition. 23 national championship wins. Over 170 All-Americans. 19 MCCAA All-Sports Trophies. Stars on Sports will introduce you to individuals that have contributed to our program's success and give you the backstory on what it takes to develop it. We'll also dive into and break down the topics and issues facing athletic departments across the nation and right here at LCC. This is Stars on Sports. Hello and welcome to another episode of Stars on Sports. I am joined by our assistant AD baseball coach, Stephen Cutter. And today, Stephen, we'll be talking about lovable losers, which is kind of ironic because of where we're at in our academic year. And even listening to our intro, we're going to have to change that because mm-hmm. we have just earned our 24th national championship. So, um, I don't know why that topic has been a hot topic in our office over the last week, but it seems like we've been talking National about lovable losers. Well, that too, both, okay. but it, it's the postseason. But for us, lovable losers isn't what our fall has been like, but it does seem to be a topic in our athletic office, and we'll go into further, but... As I mentioned, our, our, we're coming off our, our men's team just winning the national championship team. Um, our women's team is headed to Iowa for their first ever national volleyball, appearance, yep. our volleyball team, yes. And, you know, our, our softball and baseball teams have had a great fall competing at a high level against other strong two- and four-year institutions. So it's the exact opposite of our office, lovable losing but for some reason, everybody loves a good underdog story, right? That's right. I, I and think that's where it comes from. Partly. And, and we haven't been the underdog. We, you know, we might be the underdog and going into some of the postseason play, but we usually have a target on our back. Um, listening to our intro and the number of national championships, the number of, of all sports trophies, the success we've just talked about even this fall. And um, there's even, we feel, you know, they're the bias towards winners. People don't root for them or even against them that there is this natural societal thing rooting for underdogs or lovable losers and there's definitely a cost to winning and winning is a choice it is and a a difficult choice Mm -hmm. for most that's why it is you know tough to, to achieve or consistently achieve but you know you when you look at movies which will be a whole nother podcast of ours or even other sports teams in the pro level, the mm. the team that people like are ones that have had a history of losing. And even I'm Is, guilty of it. How about the Detroit Lions having fan bases in, in Los Angeles and mm. all these other places, right? Yeah, I mean, perfect. huge crowds. And yep. it's because they haven't been good for a long time. Yep. And the Lions, the, the, you know, when I, I looked this up in preparing, the Chicago Cubs are one that considered to be a lovable oh, oh, loser. Uh, when you look at TV, Charlie Brown and, you know, 
and even the Charlie Brown example, it, the nice. field goal, it's a sport example yeah. where they pull the ball pull the away ball. from yeah. when Lucy does and he, and he misses the kick. Even me, if I don't have a team involved, like watching postseason MLB baseball, I root for the team that hasn't won the most Think recent. Think about like the NCAA men's basketball tournament and how much people love the the five twelve seed matchups mm-hmm. and and the upsets and what do they call them cinderella cinderella yeah yeah and how big it is for those institutions that go on that kind of run uh loyola chicago a couple years ago florida atlantic who i just saw yesterday is now ranked this year they made a cinderella run to the final four last year and, and it's ranked um, this year, I had a student athlete reach out to me recently and ask what kind of impact that that have on a college when you have that kind of run. And and there's a lot of data out there significant. had significant increased applications for enrollment, significant increase in merchandise selling. We see it here. Yes, we do. Same. And that's what she was asking about um, in, in the increased media coverage. So it that underdog story or even that story where you do make a long run is very positive for you for your institution you know last spring when both our baseball and softball team made the college world series the the media jumped on it and was covering both every day last week our volleyball and cross country teams were getting articles which had been tougher to do with Mm -hmm. fall in this area in high school and michigan state coverage so um it does success really does help and help with the media coverage and and help with recruiting as we've talked about before but it it still intrigues me why our society then so much rallies behind that that underdog that cinderella that that loser is it back to your point earlier about being jealous or they're comfortable being average i don't i don't know that there's enough studies to really understand why America polls for the underdog all the time, but in the same way, it's 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 not it's interesting to look at the really successful organizations, and doesn't really matter what sport it is, but you look at them and there's they're they're very much disliked, and you know you can we were talking about college basketball earlier, and you think about like a program like Duke or somebody like that, and how many people just despise a program yep. like that. And the same thing happens in baseball with mm-hmm. uh, somebody like the New York Yankees. Mm-hmm. And it continues in football with programs like the New England Patriots when they had their long run. You know, how many people didn't like the Patriots? And it happens in football, in college football with Alabama. Mm-hmm. And it just it just keeps it, going. Right. You know? I and didn't even so, think of that. But so much is... success. Mm-hmm. And then that people just don't like it's just too much, too much. Success. Yeah, you're right. Those are perfect examples of of society hating teams that have been successful on a consistent basis, and how you know those, those teams that are successful will call them America's team, but the rest of America is rooting against them. Dallas Cowboys, yeah, yeah Cowboys that because they were successful, they won championships. Right. So. And you know that's our goal at LCC to, to win championships in the classroom and on the on the playing field. And as you and I have talked, I try and like Jeff Gordon, Jeff Gordon NASCAR, <laughs> Dale Earnhardt. No, uh, interesting. Yeah, like every sport has one, and it's usually that one that has consistently won. And how much other people rally against them and even the media plays into that well whether their own media supports them or the rest of the media mm-hmm. tries to gang up on them and bring them down yeah i mean you see you know allegations or you know just ex- excuses or other things that why they do and, and even on the, the other side <laughs> of um 
of that of, of losing why why are they losing why do we like losers are they are they doing what they should to be successful and if not why are we rooting for them you know that bad luck is it again reading why some people have uh, difficult and I've been in districts where they've struggled to succeed and and some of its impulse of decision or, or using the get rich quick okay. model and, and not you know trying to sustain something over time because you're desperate you you've lost a lot you try and change things quickly and we both know it, a culture takes time or mm-hmm. yeah. to, to build you know always that cliche of Rome was then built in a day, you know, stacking mm-hmm. bricks is a, one of your, mm-hmm. you know, things that you like to do. So it's interesting that people like lovable losers, yet are they doing the thing they need to do to be successful? And we get mad at those teams that are. And I think, you know, we're in a similar boat too. Even, you know, you even wonder if it impacts postseason awards or such that, you know, people want to see different teams represented or see, you know, other people get recognition and notice. And I agree with that, but, you know, we are competing for championships and, you know, usually, you know, just like another coach, the, the, the cream rises to the top. And, you know, when you bring up March Madness, it's a one game event. It could be the team with the best momentum or the team with the best matchup. And, in postseason in some pro sports where they do a series, I believe that those, you know, the, the best the team, team usually yeah. does win those. So um, have you experienced any of that even, you know, here at LCC or with um, losing or winning with just like a target on your bias, back, how, yeah. how, how that is treated differently than, or even, you know, those programs that you've identified you know, talking to some of our coaches, when you see a program that is struggling, you, you try and learn what they're doing so you don't repeat it or, or what not to do. I mean, I've had a couple of coaches here. We don't want to do that or we want to be successful. And then, and it starts where, you know, have a good support of our college. You know, you brought up Michigan football right now going through some of the allegations they're going through. And it's almost helped them in one sense that it seems to have aligned their college where they're their whole administration is on the same page where it wasn't heading into this season. So I think that talks a little bit about culture that some of these teams is because some of this can break that. If they're, you're not on the same page, then it'll probably tear it apart and you'll, you'll go down the avenue mm-hmm. of, a, of, yeah. of failing where if you have a culture of unity in that, it'll, it'll, help you be stronger and probably even be more successful. And you have to be because one of the, my favorite things that educational athletic athletic teaches is how to handle adversity and handle it in a controlled setting because you're going to have adversity in all facets of your life. So why not practice it during a game and learn how to handle that? So the good teams learn how to handle adversity and fight through it. And, you know, we've talked about consistency before, perseverance, you know, resilient was my one word 12, mm-hmm. 10 months ago. It's right. crazy. You know, as we talk about this podcast, I'm going to have to come up with a new word for the new new year. Not that I go by words, but what's your experience with having a target? I mean, you, you know, you coach a, a top five program and do you see differently? We've talked about how other teams act even, you know, like when we do get beat, it's like a, they won a national championship and, yeah. and, and sportsmanship managing can be a little tough. So, you know, and our kids, you don't know, have to l- learn that, like act like they've been there before and hopefully 
they have so to some degree we still want them to experience the joy because the the winning or the success just doesn't come very easily so when they do have success you they're going to celebrate that piece of it whether it's in a moment or whatever it is but you know i think to put it simply from my perspective or our team's perspective and really it probably comes down to all those things that you just talked about. But we as a coaching staff have been treated immensely different after year one. So we're, we're into year three now. Um, we've been treated completely different than we were initially when we started coaching here. So that I think that really sums it up. So when you ask our experiences, it's not something that uh, bothers us. It's more or less just fuel for, you know, continuing on and part of part of that whatever process you talk about, whether it's lovable losers or winning or, you know, however you want to label it, it's just, it's part of the process. So. Yeah. And, and interesting because um, our environment is a competitive nature. So it would seem like everyone wants to win, which everyone I think does want to win. It's more, do they want to prepare to win or have the will to win? So yeah. it doesn't surprise me. I've been in this business a long time where there's certain teams out there and I'm not, at any level, all levels that are like treated differently because they might not have the resource. There could be a number of reasons why a team is not successful. Right. Um, and uh, we've seen a lot of good coaches have bad records because of certain things. Over time, you could see, you're right, you would disagree with yeah, that that statement. Bit. But you know what I'm saying? A, a good coach could have a bad season. Um, but, you know, like the one of the things like John Wood and one of the, I would consider one of the, most successful or best coaches um, mm -hmm. in history. You know, they talk about how he taught kids how to tie a shoe in the first day of practice, Details, but yeah. he didn't win his first national championship until middle of his career. And then he went on a, a nice run. So was he a bad coach for the first 10 or 11 years right. or did it just take time to build it or was it, you know, luck or other mm -hmm. things? I don't know. But what I'm saying is back to the teams we talk about these dynasties that win pretty regularly, you know, even the New England Patriots, they haven't won it every year the last 23 mm -hmm. years. They've won six, seven or eight of them. So other ways to measure success. But, you know, th those other teams gunning for you are, are, you know, could be mad, could be jealous, could be um lot of factors and and the good ones work hard or emulate you i mean that's what i look at if i see a good team i'm going to go in there and try and see what they're doing that maybe i can i can learn from and i know you have that same philosophy but the winning piece is tough because it's once you see a organization start winning then you just what you said you've got people that are chasing after you to or that organization trying to catch up and then you also have the piece that plays in that we kind of talk about in our program quite a bit, which is complacency. So, you know, if, if, if you're handed $1,000 every day, pretty soon you get pretty complacent with your money just because you know it's coming in. If you're winning, you get pretty complacent with, with the winning piece and you just expect to win. And your processes start failing because complacency is sunk in. And that's what you see in sports more often than not. You see really good teams show up to a field. They might be the best team, the biggest team, the fastest team, what, mm -hmm. the tallest, whatever sport it is. And you see this at the high school and college level you know quite a bit and then they're playing maybe what would be considered an inferior opponent and they get whipped that day just because they don't show up 
Yep. You know, and you, you see that happen all the time. And that's mm -hmm. what complacency is. You just expect to be able to roll the balls out yeah. and win or, you know, whatever it, it's going to be. And that's why winning is so tough because um, you, you can't let that sink in. And the teams that can do it consistently, those are the ones that are special because yep. they're beating the curve. You're reading my notes over here. No. That's exactly what no. I have about the joy in a dynasty and why we hate dynasties because they've found a way to not have those hiccups or those, right. those games. And you might have it throughout the season in a Chicago Bulls middle yeah. of the season game. But, but I think that's why we get mad at them because they found a way to yeah. not have yeah. that that's let down. And they, and they yeah. continue to, because back to your thousand dollar example is the desire. I mean, like Tom Brady used to say, what's your favorite championship? The next one at that desire of looking forward and, and you to be normal, complacent or your mind gets complacent or, yeah. or your team can get complacent that that's why I think another factor where we get mad at these dynasties because they, they figured out a way not to their culture. And, and it's hard to enjoy you've experienced and have talked about that. The pressure sometimes is a lot when you have to win continuously that it's almost relief instead of joy, oh, yeah. Yeah. but I think the good teams that do win that and have that dynasty find a way to celebrate that moment and have that joy because that's a huge part of success is being able to experience that happiness that with a team or an individual, you, you still have a network of people that have helped you be successful yeah. to share it with and to um, recognize. So I think that is true in a, in a dynasty that it that consistency that makes people mad because that is not easy. And that's why they're they're very rare in our society. But um, we've talked about you know how pro, certain programs are known for certain sports even because that sport has found the way to develop. But fortunately, fortunately here at LCC, all our sports are pretty competitive and successful, and that's what excites me the most. And you know why we emphasize the all sports trophy. And, you know, taking that to a national level would be a goal of ours. But to many, they don't want to do the work and they want to sit back mm -hmm. and, and criticize those that are doing it because they know they're going to have to go out there and compete against them. And yep. that's not fun. That's yep. not fair. And it's not even good for either team if it's an uneven matchup. But back to the original premise, it still shocks me that society still love that lovable loser over that dynasty. Yeah, it's it's a larger percentage that loves the lovable losers, but there's still a large percentage that appreciates the excellence and, you know, that consistency we kind of say is a superpower. And yeah. when when you can have that consistency, that's where you start seeing it. Go ahead, Journey. So I was going to comment because you guys are talking about the lovable loser. Um, I thought about Kobe Bryant in the Olympics and how they talked about how all the guys went out to party. Mm -hmm. And then when they came back from partying, Kobe Bryant had his gym bag going into the gym. And they're like, what are you doing? He said, this is my regular workout. I get up at four in the morning mm -hmm. and work out. And he had that winning mentality. And that's yeah. what it looks like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and some people and were jealous of it or didn't want the, to have it. And he had it. It's the majority. It. It's the, uh, the minority that are actually doing it. And I wasn't a big Kobe fan when he was in because I wasn't a Lakers fan. But the more I study and learn about him in my position, I admire his yeah, desire, his workout, his willingness to learn and try and I mean he talked to a lot of players on the court asking them what they did to be better and then he would go back and emulate it so he's a perfect example of a person that was at the top for a long time that the people that 
liked him, loved him, and the, the a lot of people that were you know didn't <laughs> yes. want to work as hard as he did. Like, what's he doing that for? And you bring up a good point that ties into that. That the dynasties do get their share of bandwagon fans. That there are a lot of people that want to be associated with a winner, which is different than working towards being a winner. But you mentioned percentages that the majority like the lovable loser, but. The team we we mentioned also have more fans than just their the Dallas Cowboys, the Dallas yeah. area, the New England Patriots, the Boston area, because mm-hmm. fans across the country with them went and want to jump on that bandwagon, wear their clothes, you know, say I'm a, a fan of those. And you see it at all levels, even high school or the college level of even you mentioned Duke or they have more fans than they just went to Duke because of, of the success they have and people wanting to be a part of it. Yeah. So it, so it fits right in, right into to our sport that it's like the opposite paradigm where it's a small world yet at the big world where there's lovable losers, but people love a dynasty. So that seems to be exactly what, you know, the sports world asks. And this, this topic of lovable losers is, is no different than that. Yeah, I think there's I was reading about a couple studies of with social media because social media is a, such a large impact on mm-hmm. our student athletes. It's it's enormous and you've got to kind of understand how to balance it and how to teach, you know, the kind of the do's and don'ts of it and and with social media if you look, it it tends to lean a little more towards the underdog or the lovable loser story than it does to the winning story and and they brought out many many points of social media and how it it lays that way and and how the response is whether depending on what platform it is whether you call it likes or, or whatever it might be they get a lot more percentages of those likes if it's the lovable loser story mm-hmm. that's coming out mm-hmm. versus a um, somebody that's winning and w- whatever it might be yeah. And uh, that's a trend that's pretty interesting to see. It will be interesting, especially as we see how much social media influences societal decisions nowadays. As we even talk about sports, how social media is influencing Mm -hmm. decisions. And it's not just sports. Again, when I was looking up Lovable Losers, they talked about romantic comedies, how they want the underdog guy to get the the girl okay. at the end yeah. you know how society roots for those and likes following yeah. you know romantic comedies and, and but the opposite is true even with like the marvels how they they want the powerful hero to win too okay. so okay. you see both and and we see both in our world and you know we're running out of time so i'd just like to conclude and be thankful here at lcc that due to a lot of support and a lot of hard work by our coaches and student athletes that we have had our share of success. And again, we'd like to congratulate our men's cross-country team on winning the national championship this fall and all our team, but even another shout out for our volleyball team for winning the district and the league and going into the, the national championship tournament for uh, you know i think they'll have a, a nice showing first, there first time in first school time history. in school history yeah. so thankfully we haven't mm-hmm. had a lovable losing fall yeah. we've had a a great fall and we'll continue that into the the winter and the spring and so until next time go stars Stars on Sports is recorded live at the WLNZ Studios. Engineering and production assistance are provided by Didalian Lowry. You can listen to this episode and other episodes of Stars on Sports on demand at lccconnect.org. To find more information about our athletic program, visit lccstars.com. Thanks for listening. Go Stars!
This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.